The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome. So this is the first hybrid Dharma talk here at IMC. So with some of you here, about 25 of you here today, thank you for coming. And for the people online, thank you for being here. Appreciate it very much. And uh, we're still in this. Our county has a mask mandate and also out of caution. So we're even giving the talk will be with a mask. And uh, I find it kind of cozy to meditate with a mask on, actually. I keep my mouth slightly open and the uh, the humidity of my my feels kind of cozy for me, and uh, so anyway, each person has unique response to this mask thing and meditating with it. And uh, so, um, so the whole so we're beginning to shift here, and hopefully, this shift in this direction will continue, and we'll slowly open up more and more, and here at IMC and offer, start offering some of the programs we offered before and new programs. <clears throat> and uh, so um, the, uh, but for those of you online, it means that some of the format will shift probably a little bit. And uh, we'll see how much guided meditation I do. Uh, it used to be before the pandemic that we didn't do it Sunday morning. And now, um, so we'll see if, how we continue or don't continue with it. And then uh, the other thing is that um, it, I felt like during the, it was all on Zoom or on YouTube, it felt um, uh, too long to speak for the full time we used to do Sunday morning. I felt like uh, just it felt more appropriate to talk less. And so it was a half an hour on Sunday. And uh, but the the old format was uh, closer to forty five minutes or forty minutes or something. It was more variable. We we were scheduled to go until ten forty five. So for those of you who are on YouTube, uh, that'll that'll shift. We'll go back to the ten forty five ending. And whether the talk will be that long or not, or whether we talk for a shorter time and have a question a period for Q and A, and it's variable depending on the situation. So for today, um, the talk I want to give, I, I want to do, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm going to try to do. Uh, I want to uh, first recite a four-line verse that c- captures what the Buddha had to teach in a kind of nutshell. And it kind of sets a stage for the talk. And then I want to kind of uh, just name uh, th- this whole period from March 7th or something like that until now that we've been closed uh, and what a big impact it's been in our, for individuals, for our society and, and here we're coming together after we've all been through this thing that people will be talking about for decades, you know. What were you doing back then? It was like when I was young, younger people said, where were you when John F. K. died when he was killed, John F. Kennedy? And, uh, and people would, you know, talk about, oh, I was there, you know, that was how, or nine or nine eleven. Where were you? What happened? 
then people will be talking about, what were you doing during that pandemic? And it'll be kind of like a reference point. And then um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, one of the little subsections of our society, or big subsection of society that uh, had its own impact around the pandemic, but uh, which is the medical uh, field. But what, um, in particular, how I'm inspired by medical ethics and uh, the kind of the, what we can maybe uh, tap into and learn from that as Buddhist practitioners, and, and also as we open IMC, about how we can be as a community, perhaps, that uh, would give us a kind of a different orientation for how maybe we can be as a new opportunity opening up, to kind of open up in a fresh way, a new way, with new perspective. And so I wanted to borrow from that medical ethics and see if we can maybe get a different angle on what we're doing here. And then if there's time, try to uh, then apply that also to our practice and into IMC. So that, that's kind of the, the plan. So, um, that, so the verse uh, is, uh, is kind of significant because it, the last verse, the last line, says, this is a teaching of the Buddhas. So it's in plural. In Buddhas, you know, there's some idea that this Buddha has been Buddhas for, you know, periodically down through the eons, the Buddhas appear in the cosmos, in Buddhist cosmology. But they all have this teaching. And it's kind of, uh, so the teaching is, uh, don't do any harm. Very simply, it's not quite literally exactly right, but it's close enough for now. Don't do any harm. Do things which are wholesome. Purify the mind. This is the teachings of the Buddha. That's it. You should memorize that. <laughs> Don't do any harm. Do what's wholesome. Purify the mind. And this is the teachings of the Buddha. If you want, you can forget about memorizing the last line. And... Um, so that's kind of a, kind of the background for this today, and uh, you know I think that uh, we shouldn't underestimate how big this whole pandemic time has been and continues to be for probably all of us. Some of us have been in more fortunate circumstances during this time, and some people have not. And uh, but even the people in fortunate circumstances, I think it's probably had much bigger impact on the psyche, on the heart, than most of us can realize. And if you have been impacted by it in all kinds of ways, uh, you should probably also assume it's probably bigger impact than you actually realize uh, at this point. That, um, you know, it's uh, remarkable to me that just in the United States, um, uh, one in 500, no, is that right? Uh, I think it's one in 500 Americans have died from COVID. It's uh, quite something. It's quite a large amount of people. Um, uh, 700,000 people. And uh, uh, in the world, it's almost 5 million people have died. And uh, and that's just the people who have died. And there, you know, there's a ripple effect, those people who lost someone. Uh, If you didn't lose someone you loved and cared for, and probably you know someone who has, and you know it's not so far uh, steps away. And then there's other effects of uh, the pandemic that you know you know ripple out that have been difficult, just in terms of health. 
I mean, certainly just COVID has been hard for people who didn't die. And, uh, and then there's, uh, but there's all kinds of other things, you know, like I had several family members in hospitals for different, not for COVID during this time. And it was hard to have them in hospitals or because you couldn't visit sometimes. And, and uh, then there was kind of certain kind of fear around like, what does it mean to be in a hospital this time, this, around this time, and especially at, before the vaccine came out. And uh, and then not not going to the doctors or not having access to the doctors and and uh, I had to have a tooth extracted and it turned out it was hard to find as someone who would do it because everyone had to put off I did I put I put it I put off things right all these people put off things and so then finally when I got around to it everyone had to was getting back in the summer and uh, doing things so. This has been the biggest recession in the United States since the 1930s. So the people economically have been impacted huge. Uh, People have lost their jobs and some people their homes and all kinds of things. So just the pandemic's been huge. And then in addition to that, maybe, and and kind of compounded by it, the tension of it all is um, some of the social challenges of of these last uh, years. The, you know the, the you know the tremendous focus on racism and the pain of that and the disparities that exist in this country that have become more and more evident. The tension between different political factions has just gone up much more dramatically, and so much has been politicized in a way that maybe was never before. And so, regardless of what side of a political divide we sit on, we feel the tension and the challenge of it. And then there's uh, here in California and other places, all these fires, like fire after fire after fire. And and, uh, it's quite impressive. And other places there's there's floods and hurricanes and all these challenges. And and then just the challenge of some getting, getting supplies, supply chains being disrupted and you know, and like, what does that mean? That we can't get the things we usually want. And there was a time, that pandemic, there was kind of, some people were kind of frightened about getting just basic goods. And uh, so these, these are all challenging times. And one of the places those challenges were huge was in the medical field. Before the vaccine, hospitals, and um, even after the vaccine, it's been quite challenging. And there was a time, hundred you know, a hundred years ago, <laughs> a year ago, that uh, feels like a long time, when uh, there was a real emphasis on the medical uh, the workers being heroes, superheroes. Uh, you know, and I, I think they deserve that name because it was quite a dedication to show up at the hospital and to work. Maybe before the vaccine, for example, and just do what it took to try to meet the people who came who were dying and very sick and offer the best care they could. And and now, uh, in some places in the country, uh, they're still doing that and there's surges. But now they're also they're dealing with uh, hostility from people who don't believe in vac- vaccinations or don't believe in the medical establishment, feel, feel excluded or feel criticized or feel somehow they're going to be abandoned by it. And so they're angry. Uh, and uh, one friend of mine who works in a hospital in, in some state said that, there, that to go to work, she has to go through uh, protests outside the hospital. 
And these are the people, these are the people who hate, hate us. We're just going to try to save lives and we're hated for what we're doing. <clears throat> so, so there's, you know, so, and some of them, say, I've read that some of them will take off their uniform and their badge when they go shopping in a grocery store in some communities because if they're seen as a medical worker, the people will express hostility to them. So that makes it the job of, you know, offering medical care much more difficult when you, you know, they were heroes a year ago, and now in some communities they're the opposite. So, the, with medical, I've, 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 been, I've had some conversations with people, and I'm on an, an, an ethics committee for a local hospital, so I hear a little bit of this as well. And, um, and one of the things that inspires me is how often the medical people I've talked to evoke medical ethics. Um, and, um, and one way they, they've talked about it is uh, uh, they're, they're, commi- they're committed to care for anyone who comes in through the door to the emergency. And anybody who comes, they're going to offer the best care they can. And they're committed to that, to offer equal care. And one of the people said exp- explicitly, uh, it means that if someone had been a rapist or had murdered someone, our job is to offer the best care we can. We don't, we don't turn anyone away. We know everyone's treated equally. Um, whether they're vaccinated or not vaccinated, we're committed to caring for them the best we can. It's not our, our job to distinguish who should get or who should not get, be getting care. And, uh, and this kind of, this kind of complete willingness and, or willing, a commitment to just be available for everyone equally and, and to care in these challenging circumstances, I, I think is quite inspiring to me. So in the field of medical ethics, uh, there are four principles for medical care. And uh, they have kind of Latinish kind of big na- words in that field. I'll tell you kind of the big words. And um, they are, uh, because uh, medical folks will, will use these big words because it's part of their understanding. So uh, the first is autonomy. The second is beneficence. The third is non-maleficence, and the fourth is justice. And uh, autonomy means, as we, in that kind of setting as I understand it, refers to the idea that um, every patient uh, has a right to make their own decisions, uh, unless they have something like dementia or something, and <clears throat> they can't. <clears throat> but, uh, and then there's a, you know, if someone can't make a decision for themselves, it usually evokes, often evokes the ethics committee of the hospital to really consider, is that really the case? And make sure that it's not the whim of someone who, that really, really caring for that sense of autonomy that people have. <clears throat> and, uh, and, uh, so that's kind of a fundamental value, at least in this country, around, around medical ethics. And then uh, beneficence means that the dedication is to do what's uh, uh, beneficial for the patient, for the person there. Whatever is beneficial to support them and help them. And uh, is it, does it help the person? Does it benefit the person? Non-maleficence means uh, do no harm. And occasionally there's a conflict between those two. And so, you know, then sometimes the medical ethics committee is brought in to discuss that or we have to, you know, the, what to do if there seems to be a conflict. Uh, and, then, uh, and then justice in this context seems to mean that uh, a fair use, uh, everything's offered fairly to everyone. Uh, it's a fair access. So the, uh, 
the medicines, procedures, everything in the hospital especially, um, is offered equally to everyone with no distinction between any kind of, you know, uh, economic status, you know, any, any kind of distinction, race, whatever. Uh, everyone is treated equally. And so that's sometimes a challenge because sometimes there's limited resources in hospital. And so, um, and so how, do, how does it limited resources distributed in a fair way to everyone? And so again, sometimes the ethics, ethics uh, people in hospital have to come in and really kind of consider this carefully and figure out how do we do this. And this became particularly important during the COVID times when hospitals reached their, you know, beyond their peak limit. And uh, how do you do, they had triage kind of uh, situation set up because they had to figure out how to do this as as fairly as they could, but they couldn't do everyone because it was impossible. And so how do you make this decision? So so it's it's a little similar to that Buddhist verse, uh, do no harm, the non-maleficence. The Buddhist thing is do what's wholesome uh, which can be considered what's beneficial, uh, do what's uh, skillful, what's useful, helpful. And uh, but the uh, the two things which are not you know in that verse in the same way is this idea of autonomy and justice. And uh, and uh, I find it you know this idea of um, and you know one of the challenges around autonomy, especially if we take it outside of the hospital setting, to grant everyone their autonomy. It's, it lends itself, or can be very supportive of a certain kind of selfishness. And uh, whatever I want, I'm supposed to be autonomous, and I can get what I want. I want what I want. And um, and there's a lot of selfishness, a lot of self-centeredness. But some of that autonomy and some of that insistence on being able to make choices for oneself is also very healthy and appropriate. And how do we distinguish between that and find our way with it? And uh, I don't have a good answer in the abstract, but I think that that's one of the advantages of uh, embodied mindfulness, a really careful, settled attention, is that um, we can start feeling very very carefully uh, what is beneficial and what is harmful, what promotes stress uh, and tension and and, uh, undermines our well-being and what promotes it. And it turns out that selfishness undermines our well-being. If you're really attentive, you can feel that. A healthy sense of autonomy, healthy sense of self, um, uh, you, can f- you can feel and sense the difference in what that, when it feels right. And the greater the mindfulness, the more settled and focused we are in meditation, I think that it's remarkable how the better and greater reference point we have for for finding the difference between these two modes of being. And um, so uh, <clears throat> and so eventually in meditation, the sense of autonomy becomes more and more interesting because in the end, uh, it's not uh, that we become autonomous, but that, um, like, I look how I'm an autonomous person, I'm going to be my own person in a sense. Um, but rather, um, it's the awareness that becomes autonomous. It's awareness set free. And sometimes they talk about in Buddhism, uh, the mind set free, the mind liberated from, through, the mind liberated through non-clinging. 
But I like to think that what exactly the mind is is a little complicated. But uh, I have a clear, clear idea that they, if we understand it to be awareness, that we're say awareness is becoming autonomous. And what's it becoming autonomous from? It's becoming autonomous from ourselves. Any kind of baggage of self, any kind of association beliefs we have about it. So I'll give you an example from myself. Is that uh, at some point in my practice, I recognized that um, that uh, I could be aware of things, I could be mindful and be present. But I recognized that that mindfulness came along with um, an attitude, like with baggage, of kind of it kind of penetrated or, or kind of uh, suffused the awareness itself. And that was something like. Um, uh, uh, Whatever I'm, whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm aware of, uh, it's the wrong thing. Well, I, if I'm, if if it's happening to me, it's not the right thing. If it's, um, if I'm being aware, I'm not aware the right way. <laughs> so, so, uh, and it was kind of subtle, but it was kind of like a policy that mind had made up, and so, and so, as I got quieter and quieter, at some point. I could see that that I was operating through this filter of that all the time. And it kept my awareness, my mindfulness, a little tense, a little pulled back from the experience. And and so as I started feeling, being this pulled backness, this tense tension in how the awareness is, and the kind of contraction around it, that had to do with this kind of view, then I was able to relax that. And for a short time, I actually played around with kind of just assuming the opposite. You know, if it's happening to me, it's okay. <laughs> if I'm aware, I'm, aw- I'm doing it just right. And that was actually useful for a little while to have that kind of try the opposite because it helped, helped me stay free, helped me find a different way. And then at some, at some point, I started, stopped doing that. And it was easier for me to have this kind of awareness than be autonomous, independent, from this policy, these ideas, this baggage I had about what I needed to do, what was happening to me, my judgments about things. And so it became, the awareness started to become simpler and simpler. And this idea of awareness becoming simpler without any baggage, associations, judgments, even a sense of self that came along, I'm the doer of mindfulness, was part of the wonderfulness of this kind of awareness set free. So, uh, so you know, to have the awareness be autonomous is uh, kind of comes along with this liberation process in Buddhism. But the fourth medical principle of uh, justice is uh, and fairness. Um, how does that play out in Buddhism? And I think that's one of the ones I think uh, our society has maybe the greatest need for. Is uh, as as a society, a community, is a, a community, a society that's fair. That somehow everyone seems to have a fair access to to the opportunities. That many times only the people who are very fortunate circumstance has available to it. And how does IMC offer itself fairly to the world? How do we make we give access to a wide circle of people so that? Uh, it feels like we're just open and available, and and uh, and how do we 
if we turn IMC inside out, if we turn ourselves inside out, as I said in the meditation, is that as we settle and as a, so awareness is set free, it's also setting the heart free. It's also this great deeper sensitivity as we go out out into the world. And it doesn't make sense to meditate, be settled and peaceful and calm and be kind of open and sensitive to what's happening and then leave the meditation and immediately shut down, immediately kind of get caught up in our desires and our busyness of stuff and and kind of then have a barrier to really uh, block, to really feel and sense and be and care for this world around us. And it doesn't make sense because it's a way of not caring for ourselves. When we, when we shut down, when we close up, when we get so preoccupied and caught up in our thoughts, our feelings, our concerns, our busyness, we lose something about ourselves. And this is something also that can be felt if you're mindful. Uh, uh, but sometimes we're so distracted, we don't know that we're distracted. But if the mindfulness becomes second habit, second nature, and you're really sensitive and aware, you feel that as we get caught up in distractions, uh, it actually is a kind of kind of harm, a kind of self-limiting, kind of a uh, undermining of ourselves, of something that we discover in meditation perhaps, or in other ways, that feels so healthy and so appropriate and so wise to be settled and peaceful and present. And so even though the social world is a complex and difficult world, part of the task of mindfulness practice is to learn how to bring this kind of presence and attention, open-heartedness perhaps, uh, into the world with others as well. And so to turn ourselves inside out, so the part of that's sensitive to us, like, the, like you know, if we go, walk around with a closed fist, the most sensitive part of the hand is protected. That's very nice. No one's going to harm my sensitive hand ever again because I'm going to walk around this way. But that doesn't make sense, right? And um, but you want that sensitive part of your hand to be available. You know, if you have a cat, you want to, uh, or if you want to touch the shoulder of someone who feels kind of has in difficulty in their lives, and just I'm here with you, and or hold a hand of someone you care, maybe care for, like a little maybe there's a little kid in your life and. So the kid wants to hold your hand. No, sorry, <laughs> I'm keeping my sensitive part of my, my hand, you know, safe. No, but, you know, so you're available for all kinds of things. So the same thing with the heart, with the inner life. If we keep it clo- closed up, uh, then we limit ourselves. But if we turn ourselves inside out, like the, the hand turns itself, opens up. Um, but then we learn how to be stable. We learn how to not contract we learn how to take care of ourselves from that place. We learn how to recognize all the subtle policies and attitudes that we have brought with us to being aware, to being attentive. And we realize, I mean, there's a lot of reactivity, beliefs, judgments that are sometimes quite subtle that in ordinary life, most people don't see because they're so busy with, you know, too busy with doing things. But the advantage of getting quiet and still in meditation is we can start seeing these subtle ways, things, attitudes we bring along that uh, often don't make us safe. 
this lack of safety that many people feel, some of it's real, the world's an unsafe place. But for many people also, uh, the greatest danger for our safety is not the other people, but ourselves. And so to understand how we bring our safety with us, not insisting that the world become a safe place for us, which is a little bit of a difficult, you know, a little bit uh, complicated issue, but sometimes we become less self, less less safe if we insist that other people make us safe. But how do we carry our safety with us? How do we discover that? It's a challenging thing, not easy, but it's, uh, boy, is it a powerful thing to discover that. And then it's easier to be open-hearted. It's easier to have this keep our our sensitivity open and allow other to allow ourselves to be to register the presence of other people, the existence of other people, and let it register in that place within where we care, uh, where there's goodwill, where there's generosity, and uh, but not in a way that we're obligated to care, not in a way that we're obligated to be generous or have goodwill, because I think that doesn't work so well. Uh, what's phenomenal, a kind of a miracle, is the degree to which sometimes we can feel that it's just a, it's part of our nature to have goodwill. It's part of a natural kind of flow or natural response, activity, to feel warmth, to feel care, to feel goodwill. And uh, and to stay close to the close to that place where that it just seems to flow, it arises, and um, in a non-obligatory way. And one reason to stay close to it is that um, the um, that's where the freedom is. That's where this uh, autonomy is found. The autonomy of Awareness set free, the mind set free. And you, you kind of can't have it both ways. You can't discover this radical liberation, this radical autonomy that, liberate, that mindfulness brings about and stay closed and shut out and be distracted from being sensitive to this world. And so how do, you know, but how to discover to do both? You know, that's the art of Buddhist practice. And, uh, and then, uh, and if we're sensitive, if we have this open-heartedness, then I think it's easier to figure out justice, to want justice for each other, to want to be fair in how we use our resources and our activities, and not just live for ourselves, but to live for ourselves and for others. And this is uh, one of the central principles, I believe, that the Buddha taught. That to live our lives for the welfare of ourself, the welfare of others, the welfare of self and others, and the welfare for the whole world. This, the, the Buddha defined a wise person as someone who has those four concerns. Concern for the welfare of themselves, for others, for self and others, and for the whole world. And um, and it can seem like a big, heavy thing to be told that, like, I've got to get busy now, that's a lot to do. But again, it's coming from that place 
of freedom. It's coming from the place of autonomy, of, of subtleness that we did hopefully discover through this practice. So it's not a duty, it's not work. It just seems to be an expression, natural expression of what's already in there when it's been fr- set free, when what's here. And, um, and certainly that's, uh, it was a big surprise to me when after some years of my practice in my early years, when um, uh, there was more integrity in this psychophysical system that I am, uh, when uh, I wasn't self-preoccupied. There was more integrity when I was just available or the system was available to be responsive to the world around me. And, then, and that response that seemed to just arise to surface uh, kind of effortlessly. And then to act on that, to live, live, live from that. So what does it mean for, for us as a community, and uh, IMC as a community, and now as a much larger community than we were before the pandemic with all the people online, uh, what does it mean, not as individuals, but we also come together in community? It's kind of special to be here. Those of us are here in person. And uh, it's been special, the sense of community that's formed on YouTube over this time. And uh, so what does it mean? That, that's the, uh, when the Buddha said, the wise person thinks about the welfare of self, welfare of others, and the welfare of self and others. The self and others I see to be, I, I, can, I think of as the we, the community that we are. And, and how do we care for this community? And how, how do we live as a community and care for each other? And, and, uh, and how as a community uh, do we turn ourselves inside out? And so our community sensitivity is, is also out into the wider world and uh, caring for this wider world that we live in and wider community. So how does, um, how does it look in, uh, for us to have these four principles available for, you know, at the foundation of our community of autonomy and all the different things it might mean, uh, non-harming, uh, be dedicated to do what's beneficial to welfare for all involved, and justice, fairness. And how do, what does that mean? And what does it mean in a social way and for the wider communities that we're part of? And what does it mean, like for we're here in Redwood City, uh, what does it mean to be part of this Redwood City community, San Mateo community, California community? Is the, what, what, what kind of issues comes up when we think about fairness or justice as an expression of who we are, as a concern or that we have and carry with us. I don't have good answers for that, but um, I would like to believe that asking that question is part of this natural expression of this autonomy, this place of subtleness, of being turned inside out by this practice. So here we are. In person here, we're still very much evidence of living in a pandemic times. All of us are wearing masks. and uh, But we've come together uh, in a community in a way that for some of you, perhaps, this is the most number of people you've been together with in this kind of way, maybe for a year and a half. 
Um, uh, I think the I w- I've been in one group that was maybe a little bit bigger than this in August, but that was only a couple of months ago, right? And uh, you know, there were months I hardly had any any contact, direct contact with people outside my family. And uh, so it's a big deal. And here we are coming. And I want to mark this time. We're coming together in community and and uh, IMC as a as a connected community is grows because of this. And uh, you're contributing to not just being here, and you're connected. You're contributing to that not just for those of you who are here, but I think it's also a sense that people who are not here kind of are now feeling that something is becoming embodied or something is growing again that has not been happening for many months. And so in what way can we be mindful of community and what's happening in community is uh, one of the, you know, one of the, I think, interesting and important questions at this time. So that's what I have to say. And uh, would any of you would like to say anything? That uh, we have about six minutes or so. And uh, anything that you'd like to ask or bring up or say. And, and there's two ways of you can do it. You could, or three ways. You can try to speak loud, but then it won't be heard by the people on on YouTube. Um, there's a mic here. We can pass to you. Or if you wanted to have the minimum physical contact. The mic that's on the stand back there, um, all, you know, you, you, the stand holds it. The mic's held by the stand. All you have to do is push the button on it. Once it's on, it can stay on. Um, so I don't know if anybody would like to say anything or ask something. There's some very nice expressions of gratitude and warmth coming from the YouTube community. I want to say how helpful it is for me to be back here. Um, past year and a half, my uh, discipline um, when it comes to meditating at home has cratered. And um, um, my life is good, but my mind, you know, state of mind isn't as equanimous as it could have been. Uh, I seem to need to uh, have this structured setting. Great. Yeah, uh, being in community makes a big difference. Yeah, just to be honest. So uh, lovely to be back here. Thank you. Oh, great. Great to see you and have you back. Thank you. So here, Richard there. Hi, Richard. So uh, my experience has actually been somewhat different. Um, I had kind of wandered away from the community because you had moved one direction, I had moved away, and it's a little farther to get here. And when I found out that the daily sessions were online, I began... Uh, started my practice again and it actually has helped me tremendously and I've really enjoyed being part of the larger Sangha. Nonetheless, it is still wonderful to be back in person and this is very important and I think I'm going to renew my intention to connect more more often in Wonder- person. Wonderful. But thank, thank you very much for creating the, the larger song as well. And yeah. I certainly hope that that will continue. Great. Thank you. And then someone over here I saw. And then Molly. Yeah, I just wanted to say, Gil, that, um, um, that it's been a pretty easy time for me, I think. It sounds strange, but 
Cheryl and I live in a senior retirement community of about 200 people, and of course we had, you know, isolation and all that kind of stuff. And now we're able to get together in the dining room. But what I want to, what I really noticed was how helpful my 50 years of meditation has been and 25 with you in this community, it's made a very big difference and helped me to stay pretty equanimous. And, and that being said, there are times when I've lost it from, <laughs> from time to time, glancing at my wife or the YouTube. Yes, that, that, that's occurred. But, you know, I, I feel like this, is, this has been um, uh, a learning and growing experience for me. Great. Thank you. And so I appreciate your help in that. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, we, we would expect some testimonials that 50 years of practice, you know. <laughs> has makes Even it two makes, years would do it, though. I remember makes, the first five years, I'm thinking, wow, my life is, things are falling in place. Uh-huh. And, and I think that my, just my mindfulness, and one of my early teachers said that it turns up the volume on your intuition. Nice. And, and I think that was true for me. Great. So maybe... maybe Thank you. Um, when you announced that you were going to be opening the center, I a little, felt a bit closer. Oh, when you announced that you were going to be having sessions, we could sign up uh, once a month or whatever. I felt extremely privileged because I know that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people on the internet that would just give anything to be able to come here and experience this and to live here and. I've always felt very welcomed, and one of the things that you said today struck me. Um, when, when there have been really difficult circumstances in my life, at one point before coming here, I felt like I was coming out of my skin, and it was a terrible, terrible feeling. And then after coming here, the message that you gave today was, that you, I think it was something to the effect that you're turned, uh, your insides are turned inside out and you feel comfortable. And it's just a wonderful way to be in the world. And I want to thank you for mm. all of your support. Fantastic. Thank you. I also feel so lucky to be here and privileged. Uh, I also really appreciate your asking the question you did at the end of the talk. Uh, and it seems to me, maybe you use this phrase yourself, but it's asking how this community can turn inside out. And we were at a memorial service yesterday at a Christian church, a very activist Christian church. And the talk that was given was very moving and the kind of moving of talk that throughout my life would have had me go right on to the streets and march, protest. And I had really mixed feelings because I thought how and it was very lovingly given, but how that's dicey stuff when you have that kind of great passion. And, how, and it's harder in, in a Buddhist perspective to have the equanimity and yet to act. So uh-huh. I really appreciate your ending with that, that very hard question. I don't have any answers. <laughs> thank you. Great, great, thank you. So. Right behind you, there. Um, I just want to say, you know, uh, thank you for you and to the bigger community, which helped me get through not just last year, but many years. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I lost my father early this year to COVID. And being in a different continent, I, I couldn't even go. Um, but I think what kept me was 
your meditation and, and a lot of the teachings. I would go and listen to some of the, you know, the talks you had in, in, in those, like, grief or those kind of um, um, contexts. So I think all I want to say is it's been thankful to be, even though remote, but I, I never felt, you know, I was remote because, you know, I, I would listen to them all, all the time um, yeah. and the meditation every day, I think, kept me going. So I want to say thank you. Thank you so much. I love hearing that. So, so maybe, maybe that's it. For one, one, Nena, you want to say something? And then we'll s- yeah. I also want to give voice to the um, people who have, during this pandemic, not have had the easiest experience. And I will never, it's only the privileged, only the privileged who have had this experience. I remember a gentleman from India being interviewed during the pandemic, and he was asked, was he worried about COVID? And this is unforgettable. He said, are you kidding me? I'm worried about my next meal. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So only the privileged, I think, can share this kind of sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and so how to hold that? Yeah. Great. Yes. Thank you. That punctuates very much, very nicely. How do we live in this world in community with each other? What does it mean to feel community with everyone? And uh, how do we know the whole range of uh, joys and gifts and challenges and sufferings that this community, white community we live in has? And how do we share with that? How do we connect to it? How do we know it? And how do we contribute to the welfare of everyone? A wise person concerned with the welfare of of themselves, welfare of others, welfare of self and others, and the welfare of the whole world. May we all become wise. So thank you very much.